the Ship Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, November 3rd. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. My confidence level is low. I'm not confident that the Fed can beat down price inflation. I'm not confident that the economy is strong. And I'm not particularly confident that the central bankers over at the Federal Reserve have any idea what they're doing. Now, I'm not alone in my lack of confidence. Quote, we're not confident that we haven't, but we're not confident that we have. Now, that is an actual quote from Fed Chairman Jerome Powell during his press conference after the FOMC November meeting on Wednesday. Powell offered this surprisingly honest assessment after a reporter asked him if the central bank had raised rates high enough to get price inflation back to its 2% target. So, here's a question. If the guy running the Federal Reserve isn't confident, why in the hell should I be? I mean, he's supposed to be the expert here, right? This basically confirms what I've said before. The Fed would do just as well throwing darts at the wall to determine the trajectory of monetary policy. It's absolutely clear. If you actually listen to what they say, read what the FOMC statement actually says, it's clear that they're just going by the seat of their pants here. Think about this for a minute. We're supposed to believe that the central bankers over at the Fed are like a super intelligent brain trust. These brilliant economists who are carefully directing the trajectory of the economy. The truth is, they're just making this up as they go along. They're throwing mud at the wall to see what sticks. Anyway, this Fed meeting was definitely a win for the status quo. Seldom has a group of people done so little and said so little with so much fanfare. Now, if nothing else, the Fed does what's expected of it, right? Very rarely does the central bank come out of left field and surprise people. They don't like surprises. They want to telegraph what they're going to do, which is kind of why I think they're telegraphing nothing right now, because they have no clue what they're going to do next. But As expected, the Fed held interest rates steady in a range between 5.25 and 5.5%. It was the second straight FOMC meeting that the Fed has kept its finger on that pause button. And uh, Chairman Jerome Powell was intentionally noncommittal about any future Fed moves. And, you know, that was really kind of the overriding message that came out of this meeting. Uh, It was kind of like, we didn't do anything this month and we're not going to do anything next month unless we do. Uh, There was very little change in the official FOMC statement. Uh, The committee did leave the door open for future rate hikes, and it continued to emphasize its data dependence. Uh, Listen to my show last week, um, and uh, you'll get an idea of of what data dependence really means. You know, data needs to have context, right? I talked about that last week. The only significant addition to the statement was an acknowledgement that the financial conditions have tightened along with credit conditions. Now, some people took this second straight pause and the lack of commitment to a December rate hike as a sign that the Fed must be finished. And 
you know, kind of tossed around this idea that it would be difficult to restart tightening now that it's paused. And Powell tried to throw some cold water on that that idea. He said, quote, the idea that it would be difficult to raise again after stopping for a meeting or two is just not right. The committee will always do what it thinks is appropriate at the time. Now, Powell did try to throw in a little bit of hawkish messaging, but I have to admit, it it seemed rather tepid. He emphasized that, quote, the process of getting inflation sustainably down to 2% has a long way to go. And he said rate cuts are not on the table. Quote, the fact is the committee is not thinking about rate cuts right now at all. We're not talking about rate cuts. We're still very focused on the first question, which is, have we achieved a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to bring inflation down to 2% over time sustainably? That is the question we are focusing on. And as I've already mentioned, the answer to that question is we have no freaking idea. So, you know, I've talked about before the fact that it's easy to say we're going to keep rates high. We're not talking about rate cuts right now when there aren't any visible problems, right? I mean, obviously, you're not going to just start cutting rates for no reason. There has to be some catalyst for them to think that rates need to start going down. Uh, You'd have to see a really significant drop in CPI or something breaking in the economy, uh, which I think is the the more likely scenario. But, um, you know, for now, the economy looks fine. But the moment things start to break, this messaging is going to melt away like an ice cream sandwich on an August afternoon in Florida. But for now, the economy looks hunky-dory, and there really isn't any reason to talk about rate cuts. And so the FOMC is just hammering on this message, um, noting that the uh, economic activity expanded at a, quote, strong pace in the third quarter. And, quote, job gains have moderated since earlier in the year, but remain strong. Now, during his press conference, Powell said the committee may have underestimated the balance sheet strength of households and small businesses. And he said that because spending remains strong. Now, Powell didn't mention that Americans are maintaining this magnificent spending spree using credit cards. And again, data needs good context. The Fed rarely provides that, but you do get a lot of political spin, so there's that. Anyway, Powell continued to insist that we need to see a slowdown in economic growth and some, quote, dampening in the labor market in order to, quote, fully restore price stability. Now, in other words, he wants to see more people losing their jobs. Lovely, right? And, you know, this is kind of the prevailing thought. As long as people keep spending money, price inflation isn't going to cool, so they need to be unemployed so they can't spend any money, which is kind of a misnomer because when people are unemployed, they draw unemployment, so they're just getting money from the government. They can still spend money, but, you know, that's that's kind of the mantra. I mean, we saw how great unemployment worked for cooling the economy during COVID, right? I mean, if the government is handing out money, spending isn't going to go down. But regardless... You know, the problem here is is bigger picture. It, it is true that people need to stop spending, but that doesn't mean we need to see an economic slowdown and a bunch of people losing their jobs. 
The problem here is that Powell and other Keynesian economists misdefine economic growth as just consumer spending. So they obsess over metrics like retail sales and GDP growth, all of this stuff that measures consumer spending. That's not really economic growth. As Peter Schiff pointed out during a recent podcast, that's just spending. That's not growing the economy. That's spending what a growing economy produces. And that growing economy, by and large, is like in China. But we're good at spending money, so that's what what they look at. Um, but, But that's not really what you need. It's not that you need to weaken the economy. What you want is you, you want people to keep working because if they aren't working, they aren't producing anything. And if supply is contracting, that actually puts upward pressure on prices. So a drop in production actually exacerbates price inflation. We want people to keep working. We want people to keep producing things. But instead of spending everything they earn, we want people to start saving. We want them to put some of that money in the bank because saving is where you get capital investment for the future. So it ensures economic prosperity moving forward. We've built this weird bubble economy that's just based on buying stuff, on consumer spending, and there's no focus at all on actually producing, making stuff, building wealth. That's what we really need. And the the stated policy of the Fed is to try to slow that down. But that's not really, that's not right, right? It's, it's, it's skewed. It's kind of half right because, yes, you do need spending to come down, but you want spending to come down without a drop in production. So, anyway, When you really get down to it, this Fed meeting was pretty much a non-event. The Fed didn't do anything. It didn't say anything of substance. It didn't give any kind of clue about what might happen next. But of course, markets reacted anyway. You know, it's kind of a weird thing when you think about it. Powell and other Fed people constantly talk as vaguely as possible. I call it Fed speak, right? I mean, they say all of these words, but when you really parse it out, it's like, what what does that even mean, right? They yammer constantly without ever saying anything of substance. And then the financial media confidently tells us exactly what the Fed people mean. And then the markets react. I mean, people buy and sell stuff based on somebody's interpretation of word salad created by these Fed officials. Doesn't seem like the best way to invest your money, but I guess if you're good at parsing out, uh, you know, spin, then then maybe you can make some money in the short term. Um, that's not really my game, though, so... Whatever. Anyway, this time around, everybody decided that this was a dovish Fed meeting and that rate hikes are pretty much over. And the markets reacted uh, in that way. Stocks rallied after the meeting. Uh, the Dow was up 221 points on uh, on Wednesday. And the NASDAQ, uh, it gained 1.6%. Meanwhile, the dollar fell against most currencies, which is kind of what you would expect if you kind of think monetary tightening is done. And then the rally really continued on Thursday. The Dow was up another 564 points. Uh, the NASDAQ jumped another 1.8%. Um, and, and this is all because everybody thinks the Fed inflation fight is over. Uh, I read that traders are now pricing in an 85% chance that there will be no more Fed hikes this year, um, and that compares with just a 59% probability the day before the FOMC meeting. Again, it's weird, because the Fed didn't say that. Nobody said, 
we don't think we're going to raise rates in December. I mean, they didn't even hint at that. They said, we don't know yet. And everybody's decided that Fed's done. Now, interestingly, gold didn't rally quite as much. It closed at $19.85 an ounce on Thursday. Uh, it was about $6 off the interday high, um, but it was $8 above the low just before noon. And really, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later in the show, but uh, gold has really hit significant resistance at that $2,000 an ounce level. So, I mean, I guess the question is, is the inflation fight really over? And I honestly don't know. Now, my gut is kind of that we won't see another rate hike because I think deep down, the Fed people know that interest rates are too high for this bubble of debt that we're all sitting on. I think they recognize that. I mean, they're not, I don't think they're stupid. So so they must recognize that, right? I don't think they really want to raise rates anymore. But they can't plausibly say, well, we're done and we're going to cut when you still have all of the price inflation measures well above that 2% target. So I think they've they've got their fingers and their toes crossed. They're hoping that we're going to continue to see some cooling in those numbers so they can just kind of sit tight. Um, And and maybe if they get really lucky, you know, they'll get a, a really good CPI report and then they can officially pause. But until then... I think they're just going to keep on this vague, data-dependent, we, we're going to take it month by month, because they really don't know. Um, and I really don't know. I mean, maybe we will get another rate hike, but I'm more inclined to think the Fed is just going to stand pat. That is until, of course, something breaks. And as I've said over and over and over, something will break with interest rates this high. Now, Again, most mainstream analysts and pundits believe in their heart of hearts that everything is fine. The big 4.9% GDP print for the third quarter has everybody convinced that higher interest rates are not going to significantly squeeze the economy. They remain oblivious to the fact that a financial crisis is already bubbling under the surface. Peter Schiff talked about that in his podcast this week. I'm going to link to that in the show note page. Definitely uh, take some time and listen to that. He really lays out kind of what's going on under the under, under the surface, particularly with uh, the bond market and interest rates. So um, check that out. But, you know, I've said this before, and it's kind of an old saying, things happen slowly and then all at once. You know, the economy isn't a microwave, right? You don't shove in a policy, hit 30 seconds, and then poof, you're done. The economy grinds along slowly, and there's so many factors that interplay in a complex global economy. You can't expect to raise interest rates and see immediate impacts, right? And this is exactly how the 2008 financial crisis unfolded. I keep hammering on this because I think it's important because I think everybody is kind of lulled into this false sense of security because we've seen rates go up rapidly. They've been up for over a year now and nothing's happened. So everything's fine, right? There's there's this false sense of security. But I have to keep reminding you that interest rates peaked in June of 2006, and the Fed held them steady at 5.25% for more than a year. And in 2007, nothing bad happened, right? Interest rates are high. Everything looks fine. In fact, annual GDP growth that year was 4.9%. 
exactly what it was in the third quarter. Everybody in the mainstream insisted everything was just fine. In 2007, you had a few contrarians, people like Peter Schiff, people like Ron Paul, who were warning that there was a giant bubble that was about to pop, and everybody kept laughing at them and saying, no, no, you're crazy. Look, the GDP is growing. Everything's fine. Even after the subprime market busted in 2007 and the Fed started cutting interest rates, which didn't happen until September 2007, by the way, even then, everybody was saying it was fine. It was contained to subprime. Nobody had a clue what was coming, and nobody has a clue what's coming today. So, in other words, while rates were at their peak in 2006-2007, GDP growth was still strong. Now, I'm not saying that things are going to unfold just like they did in 2008, but shouldn't we at least reference the history? The situation in 2007 was very similar to what's going on today. We came out of a long period of artificially low interest rates that blew up a massive bubble that started to leak air when the Fed tried to normalize rates, and eventually the bubble popped and everything went to crap. Now, I'll admit The situation today isn't exactly like 2007. It's worse. Interest rates were held lower for longer. Then we had the insane quantitative easing during COVID. We had all of the fiscal stimulus during COVID. We have massive government spending today. As a result, we have more debt, more bubbles that are much bigger, And rates are even higher than the peak in 2006. But it it seems like nobody remembers history, much less learns from it. So here we are, another Fed meeting in the books. And, uh, you know, we'll see where they go from here. In a couple of weeks, in the next week or so, we're going to get the the CPI data for... um, for October, and so we'll see how all of that plays out. And you know, if it comes out hotter than expected, then everybody's going to go back to, "Oh my gosh, the the Fed's going to hike rates again." So, probably not wise to put too much stock in any one Fed meeting or any one pronouncement by Jerome Powell. Kind of have to look at the trajectory of things. And again, remember, things happen slowly and then all at once. So to close out the show, I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about the gold market, uh, specifically gold demand. The World Gold Council released its Q3 gold demand data late last week. Now, overall, gold demand was up about 6% year-on-year and about 8% above the five-year third quarter average. So pretty healthy increase in gold demand. Uh, The big driver was central bank gold buying, and I'm going to dig into that here in just a second. But um, the other part that I thought was kind of interesting was physical gold demand, Uh, looking at total bar and coin investment. uh, It was down 14% year on year at 296 tons, but you have to remember last year was a record-setting year. Uh, European weakness actually created the biggest headwinds, but even with a, a tepid third quarter, Coin and bar demand through the first three quarters of this year was actually in step with last year's. And again, 2022 was uh, the strongest year in almost a decade. So uh, demand slowed down for coins and bars a little bit in Q3, but it is still on pace, uh, on a similar pace to what it was last year. And, uh, you know, I think as we 
move into the final three months of the year. We have uh, the situation in the Middle East. I think that's driving a lot of safe haven demand. Um, I imagine that that coin and bar demand uh, is is picking up once again. Um, gold jewelry makes up a big part of, uh, of overall gold demand. It was down about 2% year on year in the quarter, but it was 4% above the five-year average. So gold jewelry demand is, is still pretty solid. Um, the, the big drop that we saw, where, where we really saw a drop in gold demand, was in ETFs. Um, the ETF demand has been really down for the last year and a half, and that's kind of institutional buyers, right? Um, that's your big wigs, your trust funds. So they're not buying into the gold rally, at least not yet. Now, it'll be interesting to see um, the ETF data that we get for uh, last month and, and into this month with the uh, whole Middle East Middle East situation again, because that's really driven a lot of safe haven demand. But um, that's been kind of the headwind for gold. Now, central bank gold buying is is really the biggest driver for gold demand. Um, the World Gold Council says we're on track for a, quote, colossal year in central bank gold buying. Um, and that follows on the heels of a record-setting year in 2022. Uh, looking at the data, globally, central banks added uh, net 337 tons of gold in Q3, and that was the second highest third co- uh, third quarter total on record. Uh, the only time we've seen more central bank gold buying in a third quarter was last year. Um, looking at the first nine months of this year, central banks bought uh, bought a net of 800 tons of gold. That's 14% more than through the same period in 2022, and again. Central bank gold record, central bank gold buying set a record last year. So we're already 14% ahead of that. So we may well be on pace for another record year. Of course, we'll have to see how things play out uh, through the rest of 2023. So who is buying all of this gold? Well, probably not going to be a shock, but the People's Bank of China actually led the way. Um, they added another 78 tons of gold to uh, holdings in the quarter. The Chinese Central Bank has bought gold for 11 straight months. Um, and uh, since the beginning of the year, the People's Bank of China has increased its reserves by 181 tons. It's added 232 tons since it officially resumed buying in November 2022. Um, as of the end of September, China officially held 2,192 tons of gold, making up about 4% of its total reserves. Now, China probably has more gold than it lets on. Um, you know, the Chinese, they're known for their secrecy. Um, if you go back and you kind of look at the past, the uh, the People's Bank of China accumulated 14 hundred tons of gold between 2002 and 2019, a little more than that, actually. Um, and then they reported nothing for more than two years. And then they resumed reporting again last fall. Now, many speculate that the Chinese continued to add gold to its holdings off the books during those silent years. And, you know, there's always been speculation that China holds far more gold than it officially reveals. Uh, Jim Rickards wrote an article way back in 2015 that was published uh in the uh, by the Mises Institute, um, and he said that many 
many people speculate that China keeps several thousand tons of coal off the books in a separate entity called the State Administration for Foreign Exchange. Um, this would not surprise me at all. Chinese people love gold. They recognize the value of gold. They want to get away from the dollar. And um, so, yeah, it certainly would not be a surprise if China has far more gold than they officially reveal. Um, Interestingly, last year, there was a large unreported increase in central bank gold holdings. Um, Central banks that often fail to report purchases include China and Russia. So many analysts believe that China was the uh, mystery buyer or one of the mystery buyers stockpiling gold. Uh, again, to minimize exposure to the dollar. And that's really a key thing to understand. A lot of these banks are trying to diversify away from dollars. In fact, Chinese investors sold $21.2 billion in U.S. assets in August alone. Uh, And this was primarily in the form of U.S. Treasury bonds. So there is definitely a shift going on in China away from dollars and a move toward gold. I wrote an article about that a, a week or two ago, and I'll, not a goal, a week or two ago, and I will link to it in the show notes page. Uh, the National Bank of Poland, uh, another big buyer, it continued its buying spree in Q3 with a 57-ton increase to its gold reserves. That's in addition to 48 tons it bought in the second quarter. So year-to-date, Poland has bought 105 tons of gold, which is in line with a plan to add 100 tons to its reserve uh, that Bank of Poland President Adam Glapinski announced back in 2021. Um, The country currently holds about 11% of its reserves in gold. Um, Glapinski recently indicated that the buying spree is going to continue beyond this 100 tons. He said, quote, this makes Poland a more credible country. We have a better standing in all ratings. We are a very serious partner and we will continue to buy gold. The dream is to reach 20% of reserves. And uh, interestingly, I guess you would call Glapinski a gold bug, um, because when he announced this plan to expand his reserves, he said holding gold is a matter of financial security and stability. He said, quote, gold will retain its value even when someone cuts off the power to the global financial system. I wonder who would do that. (laughs) United States. Destroying traditional assets based on electronic accounting records. Of course, we do not assume that this will happen. But as the saying goes, forewarned is always insured, and the central bank is required to be prepared for even the most unfavorable circumstances. That is why we see a special place for gold in our foreign exchange management process. So, the Polish love gold. Turkey sold 160 tons of gold last spring, but returned to buying gold in the third quarter, and that helped boost uh, overall gold buying. The Turkish Central Bank bought 39 tons of gold in Q3, um, and its total reserves were covered to 668 tons. Now, a little background. The Turkish Central Bank, um, they put import restrictions on gold after the giant earthquake, and that led to Uh, a lot of domestic supply shortages. So the central bank actually sold some of its gold into the domestic market. Um, According to the World Gold Council, uh, the sale was a specific response to local market dynamics and didn't likely reflect any kind of change in the Turkish central bank's long-term gold strategy. 
Now, the Turkish government actually reinstated those import quotas in early August, but so far we have not seen any kind of repeat of sales into the local market to meet elevated demand. Uh, the Turkish central bank has continued to actually buy gold. So, um, looking at the data, eight other central banks made purchases of at least one ton during the quarter. Uh, India bought nine tons, Uzbekistan seven tons, the Czech Republic six tons, Singapore four tons, Qatar three tons, Russia three tons, the Philippines two tons, and the Kyrgyz Republic one ton. Um, Kind of interesting, Russia announced plans to recommence buying foreign currency and gold in early August, but the government has not indicated uh, the size or the timing of future gold purchases. But again, we did see uh, a three-ton addition to Russian um, reserves in the third quarter. And basically, it's back up to where it was after the invasion or right before the invasion of Ukraine. Um, there was only one seller of note in the third quarter, and that was Kazakhstan. Um, the country's central bank reported a four-ton decline in its reserves through the third quarter. Now, it's not uncommon for banks that buy from domestic production, and that includes Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. It's not unusual for them to switch back and forth between buying and selling. So, uh, if you looked at the data from last year, Kazakhstan was a huge buyer for gold. Uh, this year, they've been selling. And Uzbekistan went through a period of selling, and now it's back to buying again. So, you, you kind of see this back and forth with both of those countries. If we look at the entire year, the biggest buyers were China, Poland, and Singapore. And, you know, I think it's interesting, I kind of alluded to this a minute ago, but if you look at the bigger picture when it comes to demand for gold, individual investors are buying physical gold. Central banks are buying physical gold. Again, where you've seen the biggest drop in demand is for paper gold, ETFs, big outflows of metal to date. So, institutional buyers are kind of hands-off when it comes to gold, Um Smaller buyers, over-the-counter buyers, people that are, are holding physical gold, coins and bars, they're still buying. So, you can kind of make of that what you will. Now, over the past week, gold actually eclipsed $2,000 an ounce twice, uh, but it was not able to hold above that significant resistance. And really, I think that's where you're going to need to see the breakthrough. You're going to have to see gold rise above $2,000 an ounce and hold that level for uh, you know a relatively significant period of time. I think once that happens, you're really going to see a breakout in the price of gold. And you know that may take something breaking in the economy. I think we're, I think we're kind of at the peak of the um, the safe haven buying due to the uh, situation in the Middle East. Now, you know, if if the U.S. gets more involved and we end up having World War III, then Lord knows what's going to happen. Let's not even contemplate that. But I think if things kind of hold where they are, I think we're we're kind of at the peak of the uh, safe haven buying, and we're going to kind of go back to, well, what's the Fed going to do? And that's going to be the big driver uh, for the gold market as we move forward. But right now, we've got gold just below $2,000 an ounce. I still think this is a good time to buy. Um, I do think there's going to be a breakout at some point. Um, when people figure out what's actually happening, when people figure out that inflation is not beat, and when something actually breaks in the economy, you know that financial crisis that's bubbling under the surface when it blows up like uh, like a geyser. That's when people are going to really start buying gold. You want to have gold before that happens. So. 
If you're thinking about that, if you want to talk to somebody about adding gold to your investment portfolio or increasing your position, getting into silver, um, silver is also drastically unpriced. If you look at the silver-gold ratio, it's like 85 to 1. And there are some significant uh, supply-demand dynamics going on in the silver market that most people aren't paying attention to. Um, There's going to be a lot of demand. I I did an article um, just, uh, I think, today about how... AI is going to really increase the demand for a lot of precious metals, especially silver, um, because it's an important component in chips. And uh, as the AI thing continues to develop, people want more processing speed. So um, it's a good time to think about it. It's a buyer's market. So today is the day to call a shift gold precious metal specialist. You can do that. Just dial one eight 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 gold 160 G-O-L-D 160. Or if you don't feel like talking on the phone, shoot them an email, info at shiftgold.com, or you can go to the Shiftgold website, shiftgold.com, go to the Getting Started tab, and you can actually speak with a precious metal specialist right there online. And, uh, you know, let them know. I'm thinking about getting some precious metals in my portfolio to help you figure out what's going to work best for your particular situation, for your goals, for where you are, you know, in your investment life. So, do it today. And with that, I'm going to call this a gold wrap for the week. You can get more details on all of the stories that I've talked about today and more. And of course, keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shiftgold.com news. If you haven't done it already, you can subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, we're on the Shift Gold YouTube channel. We're on other uh, podcasting platforms. You can find links to all of that on the show notes page along with our social media channels. You can email me, mmahary, M-M-A-H-A-R-R-E-Y at shipcult.com. Love to hear from folks. I'm heading off to uh, the Swamp, Washington, D.C. to visit my daughter. Looking forward to that, and I hope you have a fantastic weekend as well. Talk to you next time.